Hey, this is Jeff. Grab yourself a cup of coffee and join us at the table as we talk to another great leader about faith, church, and leadership. Welcome to the Leadership Trip. Rob, we're back at the table, and I have coffee hot and ready in my hand. Did you Did you get you a cup? I I am I am maxed out on the drip today, bro. Maxed out. I've I've been drinking our, since like six a.m. Coffee, drinking expect, coffee our, since six a.m. Yeah, we'll clarify, <laughs> but our people expect better of you, Rob. It's in the name, leadership it's, drip. It's about coffee. Well, we've done like seven hours of show today. Like, how much drip can I handle? Well, listen, I won't sleep for three days. But gosh, I am super excited, and it's not the caffeine buzz about this next guest. Yeah, and I'm so gracious that he came back on the show. We didn't get a chance to finish the episode. We were mid conversation and the whole world stopped, not literally, but the internet stopped here on campus and it just crashed. It. But Daniel Fusco, pastor, musician, author, church planner, and guy with great hair is back on the Indeed. show. Welcome to the table, <laughs> Daniel. Man, thanks you guys so much for making a seat for me at the table, not once, but twice to have one conversation. Well, you're so happy that we couldn't resist, right? It's it's infectious. It's it's contagious, and so we wanted to have you back. Yeah, yeah. So I want to ask the question again. It's not it's recorded somewhere in the archives, but not released. You're a musician. You play bass guitar, and it, you play upright and regular bass, right? Is that true? Yeah, I play both. Okay, so who is your? But you're just you love music. Who's your favorite musician of all time? Um. Oh, my favorite musician of all time would be uh, the great. Uh, tenor and then later soprano saxophone player john coltrane mm. so he's the guy you know uh for me uh in in all the different eras if you know a lot of people don't know a lot about john coltrane but uh -huh. you know he was in miles davis's classic uh quintet playing hard bop just kind of uh the classic album kind of blue right. he's on that then he you know he started doing his own albums and then you know i love supreme that his classic quartet and i really really love his late stuff which my bride lynn would say is just noise but uh, i think it's pretty extraordinary <laughs> and, and i can only play it when her and the kids are not in the house gotcha. so so my wife hosts good does a a bible study on monday nights where she leaves the house and this is a confession of one made a couple times when she leaves i watch music documentaries and there's a there's a really interesting one on Miles Davis where they talk a lot about John Coltrane. I think it was on Netflix. And then I watched one on Quincy Jones where he comes back up again, like John Coltrane. So there's interwoven of all the jazz musicians. And so I secretly, well, now it's not a secret, no, but so I have a, a love for the jazz music as well. And Coltrane is so incredible. I have, I have a legitimate question, though. Okay, this is a serious question. As a musician, which you are, and I am not. I played the tuba in high school, by the way. That's as close as I ever got to it. But um, that that upright bass stuff is some bougie stuff, man. That's that's the legit, you know, kind of action there. So, do you play differently with the regular, you know, four or five string bass, electric bass? Do you put hair down? And when you play the upright, do you put the hair up? I mean, is there like a vibe oh, wow. that goes with that's that? Good question. Oh, that's a great question. So I would say no. I, I mean, I I feel like. In some ways, um, when you have like waist length dreads, just the fact that you have them is like, I'm bringing all the vibe I know how that's to enough. at that point. That so, is the vibe, right? So, okay, so somebody that's... was talking to me recently and said, hey, Daniel, man, like, you know, your shoe game is really bad. I'm like, when you have waist length dreads, you don't really need anything else. Well, like, you don't even need shoes. <laughs> people you don't know. notice anything. Like, you're you know what I mean? You're to wear shoes when you got waist length dreads. Like, what's that about? Now we're just making stereotypes here. <laughs> this is a serious show, I promise. Well, now, now I want to know. So the, now this is leading me down a rabbit trail of bad questions, I think. Have you ever used the upright bass in a sermon illustration at your church? Um, not 
in real time, but I have done some videos with it. Um, you know, like we we joke around a lot at, here at Crossroads where I get the, t the pleasure of being one of the pastors and uh, we'll do things where I'll be like playing my bass and I'll be rolling the video. Like, oh, I didn't see you guys there. And everyone's just kind of, you know, it's just like some of that silly stuff. But yeah, um, but, yeah, but I, I do get to play uh, a lot at our church. We have a, a phenomenal recording studio here, just phenomenal musicians. Cool. And so, you know, we, we put out our own, we have a worship ministry called The Responding. We have a number of albums out. And then I'm also putting out all sorts of, you know, experimental music, improvised music records and stuff. And and so it's really, it's really uh a, a blast really. And the upright bass is like, I always joke that I, I picked one up in college because I played the electric bass. And I always thought that the guy with the bass in any uh, in any setting was the coolest guy in the room just because the bass was so big. And as I've gotten older, I kind of just wish I picked up the flute because it's really hard to get around. <laughs> so The flute and the dreads though, bro. I'm having the hard time seeing the... You, you never know. I don't know. If anybody I mean, pulls it off, it's seeing a flute. If anybody can do it, you can do it. All right, let, I kind of feel like dreads and everything just works though. That's but that's just my take on. A lot of people think the exact opposite. Dreads and doesn't work with anything, so that's good too, you know. <laughs> All right, let, let's let's have a more serious adult conversation, shall we? Uh, no, uh, seriously though, you you say you are a nominal Catholic growing up, and um, you know I think our listeners would love to hear your story about faith and coming to Christ and what did that look like for you, uh, coming from sort of that perspective and background. Yeah, so my, my background is I'm all Italian and I'm from New Jersey. Uh, and the only reason I grew up in New Jersey was because my parents, I'm a twin and I have an older sister. And they, when they felt they were having twins, they couldn't afford to buy a house in Brooklyn that could fit all of us. So we ended up moving out to the sticks of New Jersey. But like when you think of an all Italian family from New York, whatever someone's stereotype is, like that was my family. You know, big and loud, lots of food. And so we were, we were culturally Catholic, which means, you know, like when I was my, my, one of my youngest memories was getting on my confirmation, I got a gold chain with a cross and an Italian horn on it. You know what I mean? Like, like, it's like stereotypical, like my coming of age, rite of passage was my dad and my grandfather sat me down. We watched uh, the first two Godfather movies, you know, nice. what I, mean? I was like, nice. I was coming of age as an Italian, Italian American. So, so, you know, super loving family, but uh, we went to church as it was just kind of what we did, but we never talked about it. Right. You know what I mean? So it, there was never like a discussion about like, Hey, this is what a godly man is like, and this is God's will for your life. And this is who Jesus is. And so for me, like by the time I hit my early teenage years, um, I just, it just wasn't resonating with me at all because it was like a little department compartment in my life, but nothing that really impacted anything. And so by the time I was about 16 or so, I became like a self-proclaimed hedonist. And you fast forward a bunch of years, I start playing the bass, I'm playing in bands, I go to college. And because I don't know Jesus, everything is just, it's just insanity. You know, uh, I was, you know, off the rails. And I really started in college really struggling with that, um, you know, with that, what people would say was the God-shaped hole in my heart, just feeling unfulfilled. Uh, and really my very last semester of college, really it was the last year uh, of college, but in my last semester, Jesus really grabbed hold of my life through. My mother had, had cancer and passed away. That was kind of a pretty horrendous, uh, jarring life experience. I had a couple of friends who had came, come to know Jesus and we would talk uh, about scriptures. I was still a pretty heavy partier all the way through college, but I was really, I was, I was searching. I was not closed to anything. I was open to everything. And Jesus was kind of the last place that I looked and found life and uh, life abundant as he said he'd give. That's so yeah. Cool. So in this searching process in college, which I feel like is pretty normal, this exploration of faith and, and not just Christian faith, but just exploration of faith in general, 
what was it about the Christian message that stood out above all the others? Well, it was a number of things. So I think for me, you know, having grown up with a cultural form of it, um, I never really understood, like the Jesus of the Bible was so different from like the skinny guy hanging on the cross in the back of the sanctuary. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so it's like, I was just kind of like, like, I remember reading the teachings of Jesus for the first time on my own and being really like shocked by it. Um, I think kind of culturally, it was the last place I really wanted to go. You know what I mean? Like kind of growing up, like I grew up in the Northeast and I've lived in the Northwest and, and, you know, Northern California, so San Francisco and North. And so like, I've always lived in places where Jesus is like the least popular person. And the only time you hear about him is when somebody, something happens, someone doesn't like, and they use his name as an expletive. Right. So like, I, I was never really in, in a, in a spiritually nurturing environment. And so what happened for me was um, one, just the, the sheer, I loved how I was blown away by how radically realistic the Bible was when I read it. You know, like, like God wasn't like, it wasn't like the scriptures were overly optimistic or kind of like miserably pessimistic, uh, but it was just real, you know, like where, you know, you have these stories about the apostles. Now, remember, I grew up in, you know, kind of going nominally to the Catholic church and Peter was the first Pope and he never did anything wrong. And then you're confronted with Peter's mistakes in the gospels, like right away. And you're like, yeah, you know, and so, and then I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, if this guy's like that, like I read the book of Acts and Peter's like one of the pillars of the early church. And I'm like, and they, and they left his mistakes in there too. Like Paul's got to rebuke him, you know, at, at the church of Galatia. And I just loved how realistic it was. And what I realized very quickly was that, and I didn't know this at the time because in college, especially in the generation I grew up on the Gen Xer, you know, a most spirituality is just a human centered. It's, it's mm. this is how I feel good about myself. You know, and so, um, and which is not a bad thing. You know, I wrote my book, Crazy Happy, about like, hey, like we should be happy, but but at the same time, um, really, the Bible was was God centered. It was the human condition plays itself out in different cultures with different uh, levels of uh, horrendousness and calamity. But God is always the phrase. But God did this, and then God intervened, and that was so shattering to me. Where it's like, oh, you know, and then of course, when I really started thinking about. God becoming flesh, you know, God entering a broken world, a sinful world, you know, uh, the son of God being crucified. I mean, I, I was just like, this stuff is so deep. And, and, and the teachings of Jesus were so provocative. I never had heard these things. Like the Jesus I had heard about and the Jesus of the Bible were not the same person. And the Jesus of the Bible was way cool. Like, like he was like beyond a rock star. I mean, he was just like so polarizing and so insightful. And, and the stuff he says makes sense on the surface and then you plumb into it and it's so deep. And I'm like, oh, this is amazing. You know, and so I, I had to devote my life to it. Mm -hmm. That's so cool. And obviously being on a college uh, campus, a Christian college campus, no less, um, we still have a lot of students here who, who have been raised in either nominal Christian homes or not Christian homes entirely or very strict, uh, maybe even hardcore Christian homes, whatever the, the, the background is. Um, I've talked to college students across the spectrum from each of those backgrounds, and they're still asking the same questions you know, basically, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to me? Why does this faith matter now? Why is it going to matter in the future? And so maybe what be, would be some of your advice um, to a college student, no matter what their background is, as they try to pursue this faith or understand this faith, like, what do you, what would you encourage them to do? Yeah, it's a great question. So you know, for me, I grew, I went to college as a unbeliever, like, you know, just full on, you know, uh, hedonist. 
And I became a believer, you know, and obviously now as a pastor, I walk with lots of people who are going into college as believers and they're, they're grappling. So I think the first thing is to realize that the time from puberty, like, you know, in your, in your early teens until probably in your early thirties is a huge uh, spiritual transition that people have where you're being driven from the home that you were raised in. And you're, you're deciding who am I like, like, who, who am I supposed to be in this world? And so it's very, very common for deconstruction to happen for everybody. So like if someone comes in as an atheist because they grew up in an atheistic home, you know, that starts getting deconstructed as you try and figure out who you are. And for kids who are coming out of, you know, uh, godly homes or, or homes where Jesus was, uh, was talked about, then do I define myself like my parents as opposite of my parents? Uh, you know, and, and so we're tr exploring all these things. Now, one of the things that I always tell uh, kids who grew up within the church who are going to college, I say, listen, uh, if you keep your Bible in your right hand, that the hand of strength, you're going to be fine. You know, if you put any other book in the right hand of strength, you're going to have issues, you know? And I think what happens is, is in college, what, you know, no matter what kind of university you go to, you're, you're, they're not teaching you what to think they're teaching you how to think, but their structure on how they want you to think has very specific biases, which is their own. Like there's no such thing as somebody being an impartial educator. Every educator has a plan, they, ha they have what they value and they want you to value that. And, and, and they might be uh, overt about it or covert about it, but either way, education is brainwashing, plain and simple. So, so, so to, to say that you know, everybody has a faith-based position, everyone brings that faith-based position into their educational model. You know? And so you keep your Bible in your right hand of strength. And I always tell people that really, it's not just having the Bible there, it's having a, that I worship the God of the Bible. That's really the key because there's nothing worse than knowing the verses, but not saying I'm going to worship God and, and ask him by faith to help me live this out. Right. And, and, and once that happens, and I, I tell people going into seminary, the same thing, because, you know, this, for so many people, they, they've had these experiences of deconstruction in seminary because theological education is also designed to help you learn, you right. know, help you with it. And so it's like, you have to worship Jesus while you're being educated and right as you divorce, worship of the true and living God from any educational endeavor, you're running the risk of being deformed uh, from a, from a, from a biblical perspective. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, a heavy formation conversation, by the way. That's, yeah, that's deep. Yeah. We got there real quick. <laughs> Good stuff though. So how has sort of that understanding then shaped your own calling and how you teach now that we've, the couple of conversations we've had, you are full of joy and you're, excited and excitable but but as you're not lacking depth so how has sort of that educational endeavor and understanding affected your own calling and how you preach and teach well it's, yeah so that's a great question so i think what i realized very quickly is that um that like god's given us his word and i think that god's word you know it has everything we need for life and godliness so it's like i want to be a teacher of the word of god because mm -hmm. you know god god esteems his word higher than his own name. And so it's like, it's the Bible, right? And, and but what I think is sometimes within church, uh, pastors have a tendency to teach the Bible for people who've been reading the Bible as long as they have. Yeah. Which in most churches is not many, you know? And so I think what's gone on is that the church has done, I think, I think the church in general has not really had God's heart for the lost and not tried to design what they're doing to reach people right where they are. So one of the things that I'm always trying to do is, is I believe that uh, our niche at Crossroads is everybody. So it's like at Crossroads, the founding pastor of Crossroads, Dr. Bill Ritchie, who pastored this church for four years before I got here, who had a PhD at 24, him and his wife are a part of the church. 
And there are people who've been walking with Jesus longer than I've been alive. And they've been reading the word and reading theological books. And they've been in ministry and God has used them in powerful ways. And they're part of the church. So I have a, a biblical obligation to help shape them spiritually um, as, one, as one of their pastors. So I need to reach them and deepen them. But I also need to reach people who are outside of the, of, of the faith because in, in any healthy family, there are elderly people and there are middle-aged people and there are young people and there are babies. And, and, and I think what's gone on for the church by and large is it, it's lost its desire to have to change diapers and to be up in the middle of the night and put mm -hmm. locks on the doors when you have babies. And what I've found is that when you're, when you preached to, I'm going to, I'm going to impact the believer, I'm going to strengthen the believer, but I'm also going to make this understandable for the lost. What you end up doing is two things. One is you actually reach the lost and they want to hear this stuff, but they're so used to going to church and it not making any sense to them because you have to have been in church for 20 years to understand it. But what you're also doing is you're teaching the saints how to do evangelism, how to do apologetics and how to meet people where they are and, and understand what their, what their concerns are. So one of the things that I'm always doing is I have a, I, I'm normally teaching verse by verse through books of the Bible, you know, or through sections of the Bible. So I'm an expository teacher, but I'll always take time to say, now, listen, for some of you, you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus. And when, when a pastor says this, you automatically say, oh, that's why I don't like Christianity. That's why I don't believe in Jesus. Let me talk to you about that for a second. And right away, the people in the room who are like that, they're like, hey, I'm not the only one here like this. And this pastor isn't mad at me for being there. Like he's and like, he, and, and I try and be honest about what the critiques are, you know? And, and what I've found is that it, it creates a more humble, a more realistic uh, experience for people. And I never have to say, well, Christianity is always right because I mean, you read the book of Acts, it's like certain things that were going on in the church were wrong and, and they needed a constant renewal. You know, you read church history. It's like the church has never in any season gotten everything right. Right. You know what I mean? So there's always, and so we can, we don't have to pretend that we're perfect. Our, our message is not that we're perfect. Our message is that Jesus is perfect because he's perfect. We believe in him and we're perfect because he shares his perfections with us. And so then really it just changes the entire um lens through which I'm trying to teach the scriptures and reach people. And also I've always ministered in what would be considered non-Christian, not even post-Christian, right. I kind of never been Christian environments. So, yeah. it, you know, if I'm not talking the language of the culture, but from a biblical standpoint, I'm literally in every situation I've ever been in kind of losing 80% of the population. So I want to be a good missionary to unreach hundred percent of the people. Yeah. Yeah. That's I mean, good. it's it's the culture we live in. The Southeast is hyper biblical or hyper churched, anyways, and it has been traditionally. So where you're at in the West, in the Northwest, is by far a different cultural realm. So you, I mean, there's some some nuance there. But I think what you're saying is is accurate in any setting. You're gonna have a variety. You should have a variety of ages in your congregation that that spiritual maturity that you have to minister to through the same message. Now, not everyone will hit everybody. We understand that. There's some misses sometimes. But we have to at least be aware of that. And I think that's an important factor that a lot of times ministers who are 20, 25, 30 years into it, forget there's somebody who doesn't know who David is. Or forgets there's somebody who doesn't know the difference between Moses and Noah, you know? And so being able to contextualize that for the non-believer is a critical skill as we get deeper and deeper into generations that have no biblical literacy at all. Yeah. And the mission of the church doesn't change whether you're West Coast or East Coast. 
north or south, right? I mean, <laughs> the mission of the church is, is the same because it's, it's what Christ set forth in motion for us to do and accomplish, and that's to reach the lost, right? So uh, the methodologies may be perhaps different, obviously, but the language may even be constructed somewhat different, but for the most part, um, the objective is still the same, and, and so that's, that's what we need to aim for. So I'll, I love what you're saying here, though, about the Bible being radically realistic, and I think what you're saying is through your preaching and through your calling, um, those have been some of the key things that you've wanted to convey in your messaging or in your lifestyle. Um, and so, so that is translated and forms uh, sort of your, your experience as now a pastor from a former musician, which some people are wondering if musicians can ever become pastors, right? I mean, you, <laughs> you, you I mean, right. You, you guys are crazy. You got the dreadlocks and you play the bass and all. I mean, so, so talk to us a little bit about how you became a church planner and then you become a part of, of launching this Calvary church planning network. And so how did God lead you into those, into those realities? Well, so after college, I'm playing music professionally and, I, and I'm starting to walk with Jesus. And it, it was like, it was perfect for me because, you know, as a musician, you know, kind of my, my work day would begin at like three or four o'clock in the afternoon and go right. to three in the morning. And so, so like I would wake up in the morning and like, and because I didn't get saved, like through a church specifically or, or through a ministry, it's like, I'm like, I asked this one guy who knew Jesus. I'm like, so, so how do you grow? Like, like how do, how do I, how do I grow spiritually? He's like, man, read your Bible and journal and pray. Okay. So like, I would wake up at eight o'clock in the morning or nine o'clock in the morning. And I would like read my Bible and I would journal. I'd pray for like two hours every morning. And cause, and especially in the house that I lived in, there was a couple other musicians there and we had a rule. You couldn't make any noise until 11 o'clock. <laughs> so like, so like I'd have these two hours is like two hour quiet time every day reading like just reading the word and i remember when somebody was like bro like there's a bible commentary i'm like what is that and like this guy somebody explains it to you i'm like oh you know and like and i would get a gig and i'd go i'd go to this little christian bookstore and buy like you know a, a j vernon mcgee little book you know what i mean like or, or or all you know i was just like i was blown away and so what happened was is i started growing really quickly and a few years into this journey I felt like God started to really kind of minister to me that that he had called me not to do music as a career. He's given it to me as a gift, but but really my vocation was to, to to help people understand who Jesus was. And at the time, like I'm playing gigs and I have gospels of John in my like my cord bag for my bay. And I and like at, at set break, people are like, Man, you are you must be the happiest person ever. Why are you so happy? I'm like, don't freak out, man. I'm like, I'm happy because of Jesus. And they're like, Who? Like, you know, Jesus. So like, the guy on the cross, I'm like, yeah. And like, well, how does that work? I'm like, well, I don't really know, but here, like read the gospel of John, you know? And like, <laughs> and it's like, and people are getting saved. And it's like, I'm not in a Christian band, but I'm a Christian in a band. And like, and it's crazy what's happening. And so God starts doing this work. And, um, and eventually what happened was I realized I was called to, to the ministry and I was serving at a church. Um, and, and the pastor was like, man, you are definitely called to ministry. So he kind of took me under his wing, apprenticed me. He would, and he was a cool guy because because I was going to go to seminary. I always like going to school, love reading. And he's like, man, you can go to seminary. Or I can just get you all the books, just read them all. So literally he would like drop like, you know, Lauderette's church history and Justo Gonzalez's church history. And I'd read them. He's like, he, he came in with Calvin's Institutes. He's like, I don't understand this. Maybe you will. You know, and he'd give them to me. <laughs> I, like, and I just start reading them, you know, because I love reading. And, and so, so eventually I, you know, I was learning how to do ministries, taking me on hospital calls and I'm sitting in premarital, you know, I'm learning all this stuff. And then, he, then like one time he let me preach on like the midweek service and I was scared out of my mind. 
And right after it was over, two of the elders are like, you're like the next Billy Graham. I'm like, who's that? You know, like, I didn't even know what they were talking about. You know, I'm like, no, no, you, you can do this. Like, like, you're good at this. And I'm just like, I don't know what's going on. And so eventually as time went on, I felt called to go plant a church back in New Jersey where I went to college at Rutgers University because I made it all the way through college and nobody shared the gospel with me except this one buddy of mine who transferred in from another school who got saved. So like, you know, I, I made it through all this time in my home state of New Jersey. Nobody ever shared the gospel with me. So I'm like, I gotta go put a church there. So at the, at the young age of 24 years old with no money, no people, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and a lot of coffee. I'm like, let's go plant a church. This is going to be awesome. And, uh, and, and planted a church right in downtown New Brunswick, New Jersey, where Rutgers University is. It was crazy. I had no clue what I was doing. This was before all the great church planning books and stuff. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? and so it's like, you're just like, you know, how do you do this? Like, like hey, you got to start a business. How do you start a business? I don't know how to start a business. I'm a bass player. You know, and see, I went through all that. And after about four years, the church had built up to about almost 200 people elders, leaders. I have no clue still what I'm doing. I'm like, I'm going to turn this over and go do this again. And so like turned the church over in New Brunswick, went back to the San Francisco Bay area where I had been living after college. And like, I'm going to go put a, I'm going to put some churches in the San Francisco Bay area and plant a church in Mill Valley, California, just out over the Golden Gate Bridge from San Francisco and also within uh, San Francisco. And it was in the midst of all that, that I realized we need to get some resources for church planners. So I started this thing called the Calvary Church Planning Network, which was like an organic network of, you know, just support for church planners. H how do you uh, incorporate a business, you know, like, you know, how do you, how do you get IRS 501c3 determination? Uh, what mistakes shouldn't you make? Cause I made all of them. You know what I mean? I had all these guys who had planted churches and, they were, and I'm like, Hey, write an article. Hey, you want to coach this guy? And, and, and who's starting a church and who needs funding? And we, you know, all these little churches would put money together and give these guys gifts to plant churches. And so in a lot of ways, everything that I've learned in ministry has been like on the job training, mm -hmm. you know? And then later you're like, Oh yeah, you know, because I did these eight things, uh, seven and a half of them were really dumb, and and a half of the thing worked really good by the grace of God. So I tell people like, yeah, don't do that. I did that. Don't do that. And then now we have great books now. You know, now there's just such phenomenal right. church planning resources. But when you go back, I mean, for me, this we're talking, you know, two thousand and two, you know, uh, to two thousand and seven, you know that stuff wasn't really out there. I remember when I read the first church planning book, I was on my third church plan. I'm like, oh, look at this. This is a book on how to church plan. I'm like, wow, I wish I would have had this seven years ago. Yeah. You know, so that's kind of how it all happened for me. So so reflecting on on young Daniel back in New Jersey, where where did this sort of apostolic, and I say apostolic in the sort of the church planning term, the, the, the go start a new work type drive, was that always sort of your personality, that adventure, that go after it? Or was that something that came to light through your salvation? Yeah, so it was always a part of my personality. So, uh, you know, high risk taking, you know, I remember when I would read, you know, when I was reading the scriptures, I really identified with uh, Peter's impetuousness and, and Paul's kind of, I'm all in. So I've always been that person, like, you know, when I was playing music, I would practice eight hours a day, bloody fingers. When I was doing drugs, I was doing everything drug I could find as much as, as I could find. And when I got saved, it was just like, all I want is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus nothing but this. And, and so the idea of pioneer church planning, like, you know, even my bride and I, we talk, like, if you guys know the Enneagram, I'm a classic Enneagram seven. You're like, I'm all in it for the experience. So it's like, even my, my bride was saying, cause she's the exact opposite. And she's like, so even if it's a bad experience, you still like it because at least it was an experience. I'm like, totally. I'm like, absolutely. what, what could go wrong? I mean, like, <laughs> 
Daniel, welcome to my world. Rob is a seven through and through. <laughs> like we finished recording. This was probably like we were early on. We were recording uh, a couple episodes. We walk out and we hadn't, I don't think we published an episode yet. We just recorded like five or six and he goes, I've got a new idea. And I was like, oh, bro, <laughs> let us <laughs> let us finish this one first. <laughs> so like, I get it. Like I get it from Rob's perspective. I'm like, like we're, we do stuff. I'm like, if it fails, that's okay. And they're like, why is it okay? Because I'm like, it's, at least it was fun. At least it was fun. Like, let's try it. Like, who cares if it fails? Right? And, and, and thank God for the sevens, like yes. you and Rob, who thank God who for the sevens. Take the risk. Preach, Jeff. Listen, I'm gonna go ahead. I'm a two. I'm trying to help y'all. So that take the risk to do that because the kingdom gets expanded through people willing to take the chance. And there's other people who do some different work, and we're all created differently. It's the whole body of Christ imagery we have. But thank God for the adventure some people like you who go, I'm going to go to New Brunswick, New Jersey. Let's fly back across the country and go to San Francisco and do it all over again. Yeah. Because the kingdom gets advanced through people like you. And so I'm grateful for it because this guy's not flying to San Francisco to start a church. I'll send you $25, $100 to bless you, but I'm not flying across the country. Well, you know, and what's really fun is that, you know, often in some cases, God radically changes our personalities. But what yeah. I found is that like, you know, we were created, you know, we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus under good works, which God prepared beforehand that we're going to walk in. So that's Ephesians 2.10, right? And so, right. so what I realized is that for most people, God takes, when we're in the flesh, we use it for the wrong reasons. And then he takes it and, and he, and he gives it a proper orientation. Mm-hmm. He orientates yeah. it for his glory. And so now I realize that like, you know, my adventure seeking kind of uh, high experience, high risk kind of uh, lifestyle before Jesus. Now he just kind of takes that. And he's like, yeah, so a lot, a lot of that stuff was sin, unhealthy, totally broken. I, I don't want to change you. I just want to point you towards something that is going to be giving life to people. That right. is going to be filling heaven, you know? And so like, I, like everything that I've even done since I've been here at Crossroads, because like, you know, almost 10 years ago, I was invited to take over a first generation mega church from being a pioneer church planner. And everything we've done has been like, well, what's the worst that can happen? So like, like we try all this stuff and it's like, <laughs> well, let's just try it. Like, I mean, who knows what will happen? And, and we just keep stumbling into all these things that like, hey, we're reaching all these people. Hey, all these people are getting saved. Hey, like this is amazing like you know people who people say churches can't grow in the pacific northwest like we doubled in size in four years it's like how does that happen it's like well i don't know god's doing a work we just keep trying things and like throw things against the wall and see what sticks and if it doesn't stick we're like well at least we learned something we won't do it that way again let's try this thing let's tweak it this way and see what we can do and it's and and for me it makes it really like i'm like this is a great experience this is is a great adventure with jesus definitely not boring you know so in the leadership conversation in that um, I don't know if your church is elder-led, deacon-led, congregation-led, however that plays out. How much permission do you have to be adventuresome? And where's the check and balance on that to go, well, let's not let's not go there. You know, where's the balance on the adventure? Let's not catch the whole so, thing on fire. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, 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 there's, so there's great guardrails here, yeah. you know? So it's yeah. like, I don't get to do everything I want to do. And the number of times, you know, that it's been like, hey, Daniel, I know you think that's a great idea, but we're not, if you still think it's a great idea in two months, let's try it, you know? Because they realize that like, I can get a fit of fancy about some idea that I think might work and it could really be bad. And so, and I, I'm also part of a great team. So even though my title is the leader, pastor like i'm one of you know four executive level pastors on staff who have different sets of gifts and i'm part of a, an even greater you know kind of church board that makes decisions and we have 12 pastors on staff and so you know in all of these different spheres 
Um, not, it's never my ideas that kind of win the day. And I'm a big fan. I mean, part of it is my jazz background and then I'm a bass player. So mm. I'm really big on collaboration. I love being a part of a team. I, I love when, you know, when, when, like, I was just talking to our pastoral staff just yesterday at a meeting and I said, listen, in this season of what God's doing at Crossroads, you guys are getting the ball. I'm just going to get like, I'm just going to keep giving you the ball. You know what I mean? And, and, and if you're, and if you're sticking three pointers, great. If you're dunking it, great. You know, if you guys are like, hey, Daniel, I need you to take the ball for a little bit. I'll take it back. But I, I'm just going to keep giving you the ball because we see that in the season of what God is doing here. And so for me, you know, I, the fact that I'm on teams, the fact that it's not only my crazy ideas. Um, but one of the things I've also found is that when if you're not scared in leadership, people who are more cautious will come up with the most risky ideas, which I think is super fun. Like I have some I have some some folks who are, are real cautious on our board, on our pastoral staff, on our executive team. And they come up with some stuff because they know that like we're willing to even just toy with the idea. We might not do it, but like, you know, we like I think it's um, Ray Dalio in his book Principles talks about the idea meritocracy. Mm. It doesn't matter where the idea comes from. We just want the best ideas to be at play. And when mm. you open up your leadership to I don't care where the idea comes from. If it's a good idea, we'll give it we'll give it some time to look at it and see if we want to do it. You get ideas from all over the place. And so I love being on a team that's willing to be entrepreneurial, be apostolic, uh, also, uh, you know, do things that seem kind of contrary to what our nature might be perceived to be, if we think it's what's necessary and what God is asking us uh, in this season. Yeah. And I think from a leadership perspective, I think it's really, really important to, to underscore the fact that that kind of culture is not automatic because it requires deep int intimacy it requires great trust. It requires time and patience and failure. It requires forgiveness. It requires so many elements, I think, that are reflective of this radically realistic gospel that you're talking about within that team context in order for people to feel safe enough and encouraged enough and a part of it enough to want to share those ideas, even at the cost of possibly being rejected, right? So I think it's, I think it's really important um, you know, because sometimes it's easy for us to say, hey, give me your ideas, right? But we haven't cultivated the soil enough for people to want to risk that. And so I think it's a great leadership lesson and understanding that that culture is is greatly intentional and it takes time and it takes uh, so many relational components to actually build and to grow and to sustain. So good well, answer. You know, on my side, like as an, so my Enneagram is a two. And I'm obviously not a seven. Um but it gives people like me who are creative without necessarily the whimsical adventure permission to say our dreams out loud. So I can go to Rob and go, hey, I've got this idea because I know Rob's going to go, hey, let's give it a shot. So your adventuresome, winsome spirit is good for people who may not take mm -hmm. the chance on their own, but have creative ideas. And I think that's a huge leadership sort of element to, to kind of capitalize on that get some people with some adventure. It's going to help fuel the creativity of people who may not have feel the personal permission to chase some of those dreams. And I think, you know, what you guys are talking about, I just love it so much. And I think that in a lot of ways, what we make the mistake in our own insecurity sometimes to, to not value people who look at things differently because we yeah. think it calls into question who we are. And mm -hmm. I think if we really have like that biblical view of the, of we're all members of the body and each body part has its own unique function. Like I love it when my operations uh, my executive pastor of operations comes and say, Daniel, I know you want to do this, but I have no clue how we're going to fund that. You know, can we talk about how to fund it? 
because there's nothing worse than when you step out to do it and you can't actually accomplish it. And so like, if he, if he doesn't do that, then we step on out there. And even if we get something going, we're not going to be able to accomplish it because Jesus told us that we have to count the cost. Like, is, is it worth right. it to go to war? Is it worth it to build that house? Like, and so, you know, when you begin to get comfortable with the fact that's like, there are some people on my team who are cautious and I expect them to be. They expect, like, I always joke, like, they expect me to be the gas man. Like, like I, I got my foot on the pedal. I, I want to go as fast as we can. The worst that happens is we crash and hopefully we don't die. And even if that happens, if we don't die, we'll have like a cool story to tell after it, you know? And so and they know I'm going to be like that. And, and I know that some of the guys are going to be more, you know, on, standing on the brakes. So we'd be like, listen, we shouldn't even be in the car right now. Our license got revoked because of the last thing that went on. You know, we have all those kind of dynamics. But what I've just learned how to do as a senior leader is just appreciate it you know, yeah. and work through it and realize that, that in order to, you know, if you want to, if you want to go fast, you go alone. And if you want to go far, you go together, yeah. you know? And so it's like that, that old, it's like a, like a African proverb, I think it is. And, and, and I think that that reality of just honoring the team that God has assembled around you, um, just learning how to understand one another, appreciate champion one another, um, it's really, really powerful because then you are allow, like you're saying, people who maybe aren't as risk-taking, to dream out loud, you know, uh, I, I, there's a guy on our staff who is brilliant, brilliant, but like every time he gives an idea after it's over, he wishes he hadn't said anything, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so I'm like, listen, no, it's okay. And he's like, but if it doesn't work, I'm like, listen, if it doesn't work, don't worry about it. Like, like, I'm not going to be upset with you if it doesn't work because if it doesn't work, we'll have learned a bunch of stuff. You know what I mean? Like, and, and because I believe that nothing can prevail against the church, you know, the church with a big C, like the people of God, yeah. like in some ways, I think, you know, nobody ever changes the world when they do what feels safe, yeah. you know? And, and so there's that part of me that it's like, I always have to remember like, man, like, like the way that we're going to reach kids, kids on a college campus, it hasn't been designed yet. Cause if it had been designed, if it really reaches them, everyone's going to be doing it. We have a revival on every college campus. Yeah. So like someone's got to do, it's not that the message changes, but how we connect with people, how we interact with them, how we meet them where they are. Like, so, so I'm never looking to, to just see like, what is people doing? I don't want to be safe. It's like, I, I want to grow God's kingdom, you know? And if, and if we have that focus on growing God's kingdom, then whatever we try, e even if we fail, you know, uh, we'll learn some things and, and we'll need those lessons in order to try the next thing and to get involved in the next thing that God has for us. Such a That's great cool. perspective. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about the book a little bit. Um, this book called crazy happy, which is really cool. And in it, you kind of unpack these nine, uh, surprising ways to live this beautiful life as you describe. And, um, so kind of talk us through the book a little bit, like, where did it come from? What are some of the key takeaways? Um, how do we be happy, bro? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I'm so happy that you guys want to be happy. I always say that, like, sometimes in the, sometimes in the church, people are like, oh, man, God doesn't want you to be happy. I'm like, so he wants you to be unhappy? I don't think so. Like Psalm 144, 15 says, happy are the people whose God is the Lord. And so, so you know, there's a reason McDonald's never sold the sad meal. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, let, like, you imagine going to McDonald's, yeah, I have a sad meal. It's got like, it's got like a, a burger, some fries and a little thing of tissues in there. Like nobody would buy that. And if they did buy that, you'd be like, man, we need to get you some help. So like everybody wants to be happy, but our culture has kind of trivialized happiness, right? It's like, it's like, it's superficial. It's always based on something that happens on the outside. Right. And so, and, and, and because of the world that we live in, that's kind of organized this way, we're, we're all end up on that hamster wheel of happiness seeking where you're there's, like, I'm going to be happy here. I'm, like if I, if I get this job or if I get married or if I have kids, you know, or if the kids finally grow up and get out of the house or w whatever the thing somebody has, it's like, I'll be happy when, 
But then I started realizing, and it was just so, it was so, it was such a simple aha moment for me at a time when I wasn't really feeling all that happy, although everything was going, all the things that I was hoping for was happening. Um, I realized that Jesus in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, maybe his most famous passage, the Beatitudes, he already explained the nine characteristics of the happy person because that word blessed, makarios in the Greek, it literally is trying to say, oh, how happy. So I'm like, wait, 2000 years ago, my savior already explained what happiness in God's eyes was. And I started looking at it and I'm like, no one's talking about this. Like, happy, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the first beatitude. So like happiness is on the other side of humility. Said no discussion on happiness ever except for Jesus. Or the second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Most people would say that happiness is the absence of sadness, but Jesus says, no, happy is the person who grieves because God comforts in our grief. And so I realized that Jesus redefined happiness for us 2000 years ago, and we haven't been looking at it. And so what I do is I take those nine beatitudes and then I marry them to the Paul's nine fruit of the spirit. Oh, wow. and, and for me, it was like, it was such a simple thing because I was like, obviously the fruit of the spirit, everyone's like, yeah, man, that's the life right there. But I'm like, there's nine beatitudes and nine fruit of the spirit. These are two famous, you got to put them together. And, and really quickly, I, I wrote them out and I, I didn't mix them up to make them make more sense in my brain because I believe God inspired his words. So I'm like, these are the right order. Just left them in the order and I started studying it. And I'm like, I went right to Google. I'm like, someone had to have come up with this first. Someone had to have written this book first. This is too good. And I got super crazy happy because I'm like, oh yeah, like nobody wrote about this before. I'm like, well, I get to be the first one. So that's what happened cool. with it. That's how I feel about every idea. Somebody had to already think of this first. Yeah. Usually that's true. And I said this before we started recording the show. We just spoke to um, some mutual, a mutual friend, Derwin Gray, who wrote The Good Life. And, and he spoke of the exact same thing on the, the, uh, the Beatitudes, the Sermon mm -hmm. on the Mount. There seems to be an echo in the kingdom. And, and we see this from time to time, that God gives one message to several people and it keeps showing up. Um, I feel like a couple, like about a year ago, it was on rest and rhythms. We started seeing a lot of people talk about the elimination of hurry. Uh, yeah. Rebecca Lyons talked about rhythms. We've talked about rest. And there seems to be another echo coming in the kingdom about happiness, which has almost been a taboo word in the church. Like, like we can have joy, right? We can have the joy of the Lord, but we don't have happy. Help us understand why you feel like the Lord right now is challenging his people to have this understanding of blessed as happiness. Well, you know, and, and Derwin's book, The Good Life, is a great book. And, and Derwin is a great man, great yeah. pastor. And I just, I appreciate it. I love him. And, and I, I think what's going on is I think that one of the things that we have a tendency to do it as the church, church with a big C, is if I could paraphrase something that Martin Luther said, he said that sometimes Christians can be like drunk men, either fall off one side of the horse or the other. Right. And so, so I think what happened, like with things like with rest and, and rhythms and, 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 you know, being unhurried. So we, you know, we're kind of in, you know, we've been in that season as a church is there was this idea that, oh man, like, you know, you have to work yourself to the bone, you know, like if you're not radical, you know, and falling apart, you're really not serving Jesus, which is not the Bible, but we get into that kind of stuff. Like you, yeah. you, you, you respond, we react to one part of the culture, then we fall off the other side. Right. So I think what's gone on with, with the idea of happiness is that, you know, um, our culture has kind of owned the happy space. And so the church responded to the superficial, trivial versions of happiness and said, oh, no, you know, God doesn't want you to be happy. He wants you to be holy. You know what I mean? And it's like, yeah, God does want you to be holy. 
but if you're holy, you're going to be happy. So like you're, you're actually setting up a false dichotomy. And, and I'm like, and by the way, no, you know, being a, a grumpy Christian is being a bad missionary. So when you're, when you're unhappy, nobody wants to know Jesus if you're grumpy and you know Jesus. Yeah. So it's like, I think what, what God is doing right now in the area of happiness is he is redeeming it, which long before 21st century American culture or Western culture, Jesus already talked about happiness. And it's in the Old Testament as well. And so like, so God's word has already defined happiness for us. And I think what happens with the church sometimes is we let the culture take the space and we react to the culture rather than, like we'd rather be a thermometer than a thermostat. Mm -hmm. And I think that really like in all these areas, I think, you know, the church is coming to terms with the fact that if we're not a thermostat, we're all lost. And the church is trying to find its it's setting again in a world that is now more hostile to Jesus. Uh, you know, like for some people that's shocking because of where I've served in the country, that's just normal. So right. like, I'm not, I'm not surprised by this because I've only ever experienced faith this way. Like when I went from being a, a musician to being a pastor, I always joke that the, the only thing worse in a non-Christian family than having a musician for a child is having a pastor for a child. <laughs> you know, like they thought I was in a cult. They didn't know what was happening. And I don't knock my family for it. It just wasn't something that we would have ever thought of doing. And so I think this idea, I think God wants to redeem happiness because really happiness is the emotion that we feel given a disposition of the heart that trusts God. Mm. And so that, and that's why it says, oh, you know, Count it all joys when you fall into various trials. It's like, I remember reading that the first time in my Bible being like, what? Like, what kind of nonsense is this? You know, like, like you know, Jesus at the end of the Beatitudes, blessed are you when you're persecuted, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. It's like, wait, so when they're, when they're like beating you up, you should be rejoicing and exceedingly glad? Like, seriously? But what you realize is that when, we're, when we abide in Jesus and our hearts are, are, are at, are fulfilled in Christ and he's our nourishment, we start finding happiness in crazy places and in, in, in surprising places and in, in places you're like, I never would have thought like Jesus said that you're more blessed to give than receive. Like yeah. you're happy when you give, as opposed to when you get our culture says you're happy when you get when, when Christmas comes and your wife buys you a Lexus, because that's what the commercial shows you. You're so happy until you get the, the car payment. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like, no, no, you're actually happier when you give. And then all of a sudden Jesus is the greatest in the kingdom is a servant of all. And you start serving other people and you find this crazy happiness where you're like, I never realized I'd have so much fun serving in a soup kitchen. I never realized I have so much fun going across the world and, 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 and meeting people at their places of pain in the name of Jesus. And why didn't anyone ever tell me this before? It's like, well, this has been the way of Jesus the whole time. It's been in our Bibles as long as we've had the Bible. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I love this conversation. I, man, and I wish we had more time. Maybe this is a part two conversation, but I do. And coming from having served on the West Coast and that culture and really understanding where you're coming from, from that, that, that particular dynamic, I do think that there is a dismantling happening of the cultural Christianity that has been fairly pervasive probably for several decades now, at least in an American context, right? So recently heard a story, which I was not aware of until I heard the story, but of St. Uh, Perpetua, who was in 200 AD around there. And uh, long story short, she, she was taken into prison because of her faith and she was brought to a Roman Colosseum and the the love of God was so powerful on her that the uh, the Roman soldier actually couldn't slit her throat to kill her so she steadied the hand of the Roman soldier 
and helped him slit her own throat. But what she said before that was just so powerful and was the reason why he was trembling is because she was talking about the power of the love of God in her life. And, in her, in, in, and so she could only ever be um, a follower of Jesus. And I think, I mean, is it to that extreme? Obviously not, right? We're not going to go to Vancouver and get our throats cut, <laughs> at least hopefully not, at least not because we're Christians, right? You know what I'm saying? I, I don't know how Vancouver rolls, man. I know what it was like in South LA, like there were some places, but uh, Vancouver, I don't know. But I think, I think the important thing that you're kind of pointing out here in the conversations that, that we still need to have is, especially as it centers around happiness and the Beatitudes and the, the nine fruit of the spirit, is that we are being called to something so much richer, so much deeper, so much more tangible that it transcends culture and transforms culture, thus becoming those thermostats that you're talking about. So I think this is such a critical um, identity forming conversation that needs to be had. Yes. On college campuses where we are, but in local churches where you are all over. So um, I don't know where I was going with that. It was just a little sermonette that happens. Good. That happens yeah, with sevens. <laughs> that happens with sevens. Right. But anyway, I, I just really appreciate where you're coming from on that. Well, I love what you're saying because, you know, really what you're saying is that it's time for the church to be the church all over again. Yeah. yeah. You know, and it's like, and in some ways, like given all that's going on in the world today, I think it's really easy for the church to get, you know, kind of seduced by all of the opportunities that our culture offers, you know? Right. And so like right now you have, for a lot of people, you're talking about this dismantle, this, that, this dismantling, you know, I just had a, a conversation with a local pastor who's been in our community for a long time and he was really lamenting both the dismantling of how different things are now than they were like decades ago. And right. also what he said was my acquiescing to it rather than fighting against it. You know, mm -hmm. and we had, we had a really, it was a really like, I was super grateful for the conversation and I was, you know, and I said, I'm like, I, I think you, you know, you're used to Christianity having this privileged place where like, you know, you can do a baptism at the park and they don't charge you because you're a church, you know, like, you know, there was a time when churches didn't pay property taxes, yeah. you know, and, and now those things are starting to change, you know, and he's like, well, you should fight against it. And I'm like, well, you have to realize I never got used to it being us having those, those, those niceties, those benefits, you know, I, I came into this and it's been different. And, and, and I've never served in a culture where, where Jesus was just accepted. You, you have to, you have to, you have to prove your right to be able to speak into people's lives where I've served. Right. So it's like, so I'm like, so because it's never come, I've never had those benefits. I don't actually feel like I'm losing anything, but I'm like, I do need to pray about like, what am I supposed to fight against that? Maybe I'm not fighting against from the position that I'm in. And I really received that from my brother who's been around longer. But I think that really what it always boils down to is no matter what the, no matter how uh, the culture may be, uh, might be uh, benefiting the church how the culture might be uh, embracing the church, how we might be, you know, might give us an advantageous position. Mm -hmm. The church's job is still always to be salt and light to reflect, you know, the face of God into the, into the culture and to stand before God in the name of our cultures as intercessors. And so in a lot of ways, I just think now, because it costs a little more, it feels a little bit more risky 
for for the church. And I just try and tell the folks, man, like, listen, like like you said, they're not killing us. Like, we're, I'm not ending up in jail. Like, I'm allowed to talk about Jesus. We we beam it all over the world from from our sanctuary. We have a sign on the front of our, you know, you drive by crossroads. It says Jesus is real, big letters, man. It's like, man, we're all about Jesus. And so they're not coming to arrest me. I'm not preaching from jail. I'm not having to sing in jail, hoping that God's going to send an earthquake to right. let me out. So it's like, you know, we're, we're, it's not that bad, but it is harder. It feels harder for a lot of people. And I think that with that, it's just like, man, so are we going to respond to it being hard by getting hard hearted? Mm-hmm. Or are we just going to embrace this and say, Lord, this is the community you, you've you called me to, you know, they're not going to imprison me, but it's not going to come as easy as maybe I thought it would. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah. yeah. When it circles back to what you're talking about, the Beatitudes, even when we're persecuted. Yeah. Even when they come against us, yeah, you know, there's a joy and a and a gladness in that, and that's a challenge. It's a challenge that that we're gonna have to probably learn to um, learn to take on. And um, again, we're not being arrested, we're not being killed, but there is it is harder. And I think even in that, we should be joyful and we should be happy, and we should express the love of God. And there's, I think, there is some some things to lament, but let's lament the right things. So yeah, I think we don't lament well as Christians, but let's lament the right things. And when the season of lamenting is over, let's go back to being happy because the joy of the Lord is our strength. Yeah. I mean, so Daniel, what a, that, wow. What a great And I talk about that in the book though, because like the second beatitude, oh, how happy are those who mourn. So like right. one of the cases I make in the book is like, we have a tendency to want to divorce lament from happiness. Jesus actually mm-hmm. incorporates yeah. grieving into happiness. And so I'm like, wow. So like when something breaks my heart, like that doesn't mean I'm not happy. That just means I'm embracing a broken world in the very way that Jesus did because Jesus wept. Yeah. So like, I think this idea that like happiness is when I'm not sad. It's like, actually, no, uh, the the joy of a Christian is a brokenhearted joy, mm. you know, and invo- it involves sadness. And so it's like, when you start to realize that lament is actually still a form of happiness, it's like, Ooh, I never thought of it that way. And so that's why God's word is so good. Cause it always, it, it, it reframes things for us from a perspective that we wouldn't have left at our own devices. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, man, this has been so much, so much. It's been a lot. <laughs> Just go with so much. That's, that's my adjective for it. It's a lot. We do have one final question for the guy from Rutgers. I'm not going to be mad about it. Let me side note here. I'm a, a fighting Illini University of Illinois fan, and we're crushing it in basketball, including crushing Rutgers a couple of times this year. But, <laughs> but for the guy that's, that's gone to Rutgers, we have one final question. Uh, what is one lesson you learned in college that did not take place in the classroom? So to be honest, I think most of the lessons that I learned in college didn't take place, didn't take place in the classroom because, you know, in some ways what I, I think the biggest lesson for me was that part of college is learning, figuring out who you are Mm -hmm. and, and, and what you believe God wants for you, you know, and, and in a lot of ways, um, that isn't something that you learn in the classroom. Your life becomes the classroom for that. So, mm-hmm. um, so for a- any college student, what I would say is that everything you're experiencing right now is the curriculum from God to lead you into the life he has for you. So just be willing to trust him and, and learn the lessons because college is a, is a cornucopia of feelings and emotions, good times and bad times, you know, uh, passing grades, struggling classes, you know, friends problems, identity problems. Um, but if we keep our hearts open to the Lord, 
um, I believe that all of it actually points us to, you know, his purposes for our lives. Yeah, that's great. Mm -hmm. That's a great answer. Daniel, it's been a joy, my friend, and um, looking forward to uh, continuing to hear from you and connect with you in so many different ways. And uh, thank you so much for being on the show. And as we like to say here at the Leadership Drip, you've always got a seat at the table. Thanks, for man. That. I appreciate you guys. Thanks so much. Hey, friends, thanks for listening to this episode of the Leadership Drip. We loved having you at the table for this conversation. Would you do us a favor and comment, rate, subscribe, and share on your social media? That way we can get this content to other great leaders. And stay connected with us on Instagram at The Leadership Drip and on Twitter at Leadership Drip. And remember, you have a seat at the table.